I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So it's time for another podcast recording, and as always, we have a clear plan as to exactly what we're going to do. A huge agenda point, lots of bullet points down here that right. we're going to hit every single one of, and Correct. not at all are we just going to make it up as we go along. No, never. That would be irresponsible to our listener. Our listener would hate that, I know. They would, <laughs> it would expose them to the fact that we just make all these things up as we go along. So... You and I were discussing before we hit record um, about some of the things that we've talked about before. And in passing, we've mentioned uh, the fact that um, I briefly ran a small C++ tools company. Mm-hmm. And one of the examples we have in our like document of ideas is writing tools is difficult and or doesn't make money. And yes. I figured we should talk about that because I certainly have some firsthand experience and I don't know what, what to what extent you have any... Dis- have you ever oh, built, yes. like, developer tools? Oh, yes. So this is another situation, just like when we, we both wanted to go into the games industry. This is yep. another thing that we have both done. I have also started a developer tools company, and I think I had a very similar uh, experience to you in that it didn't go great. How do I not <laughs> know this? Um, yeah, so this was... Uh, well, I, so do you want me to explain my you first? Explain and you explain your situation, yours? yeah, because I okay. always talk about me. Uh, <laughs> not true, but yeah. Very true. Um, yeah, so the, the experience that I had is when I uh, I was working at a startup in Dallas, and me and uh, a couple of friends, although I, I think I wound up doing, like most open source projects, it's like, you know, 99% one person and 1% other people in the early days. Um, but uh, that's not true. I don't know why I said that. That can be true. But in any case, with this thing, we uh, built a, uh, a test runner for Java uh, called InfiniTest. And what InfiniTest ah. does is it inspects the bytecode of the class files that whatever you know, compiler or editor that you're using generates. Um, and when those class files change, it will work out the minimum dependency based on the static dependencies obviously it doesn't really handle things like reflection and stuff like that but turns out that's actually not that big of a deal Um, but it would analyze the dependencies between the files that you change to figure out the minimum set of tests to run and and the idea behind this tool is that if you're working in a very large java code base Mm -hmm. with like you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of tests even if they're well written fast tests they still take a long time to run the full suite and so doing this kind of dynamic dependency analysis helps speed it up. It would also run the tests in parallel across um, multiple threads, which additionally helped speed it up. And so the idea basically behind this tool is that we, um, it was a tool for working with sort of very large code bases with a lot of tests. And the interesting thing about this is that at the very same time, uh, Kent Beck was building a tool called JUnit Max. And JUnit Max was kind of attempting to solve a similar problem, um, but in a much different, and I have to give him credit, much simpler way, which is um, he he had based it off of some research. I'm kind of blanking. There's a guy named David Saff who did a bunch of research into testing and sort of patterns of testing. And I think it was David's research that Kent was using when he did this, but I 
I don't actually know if that's true, so don't quote me on it. But um, but anyway, Kent basically had had uh, seen and uh, had discovered through research that the the duration of tests is power law distributed, and so right. you have like most tests are actually pretty fast, and then you have a, a few tests that sort of you know, uh, are, are slower, and then there's sort of this power law You've curve. You've not seen the project that I'm working on right now. <laughs> um, and so he's like, okay, well, if that's how tests are generally distributed, then you can get the most feedback the fastest by just running the tests in speed order. So you just run the fastest tests first, and then you leave the slower tests to the end. And, you know, his rationale was like, okay, yeah, you could do all this sort of dependency analysis stuff, but but you really, can, it, you, you could just, start with a much run, simpler thing and then say, yeah. okay, after 30 seconds, we've already run right. the good sort of, I was going to say the 2080 theory, but like it's more like the 99.1 yeah, theory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously that means that there is a hole in your testing that maybe you, ex, you uh, at least for like the interactive case, when you're just mm -hmm. fiddling around and saying, I'm changing this and I'm changing that, and you need to get the green tick a bit too early. And obviously, presumably you still run the full test suite before you like do a large commit. But yeah. this is about interactivity and about... Right, right, right. Um, and so he had built this tool right around the same time that I was building it. And we were both like really drinking the Kool-Aid of like the lean startup philosophy. Right. Um, which, you know, um, Stephen Gary Blank's book, you know, Four Steps to the Epiphany. And there's a guy named Eric Rees um, who was talking a lot about like, you know, how to build a startup by, you know, sort of iteratively building technology, looking for product market fit. Um, and so Kent and I were kind of doing the same thing at the same time um, in the same space. Um, and the way I was doing it was I, was I I had been working at a startup. We sort of built this open source tool. And then I went to work for a consultancy named Improving Enterprises. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we sort of had the idea when I was at Improving to say like, hey, we could take this open source tool. All of the people who wrote it are employees of Improving Enterprises now because the startup had folded because of the financial crisis. So um, it was easy enough to get everybody in a room to be like, all right, do you grant your IP to this new company that we're forming? Cool, awesome, all right, we're done. Um, so we got all the authors of the open source you know, tool together and sort of formed this company and tried to sell it. And you know, I think we maybe sold a dozen copies, maybe two dozen copies so, of this. But thing. this was an open source project that, well, you that were, we had closed. You closed. I see because we, you had everybody's buying yes. at that point. I've I've never yes. really thought about how that is achievable. You know, I know how software open source projects can be relicensed, and I suppose mm -hmm. this is just a special case of relicensing where you're saying, well, the last version that we had is open source, but if we move on, right, I mean, right, now it's not. We we don't have to keep that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the open source version was still out there, but right. this is like, oh, we're going to turn these into like proper IntelliJ and Eclipse plugins, and we're going to put a lot of work into making the ergonomics really nice. Because, you know, the thing that was open source was basically like a really thin wrapper around the dependency algorithm. Yeah, right? which is the um, cool bit of tech that, that it you is the came cool up with. It is the cool bit of tech, idea. It, yes, yes. And, and then obviously there's the other 90% of the program, which right. makes it like as usable and as intuitive to a user. And um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like that's sort of that long tail of like making it, turning it into a real product instead of like a, a, a prototype basically, which is yeah. sort of what the open Yeah, or a sort of was. more of a DIY thing like most yeah, open source projects tend to yeah, be. Although, yeah. you know, there are notable exceptions to that. You know, we have yeah. we have friends who are very good at generating open source projects that are sort of 
uh, immediately usable and obvious how to use. And I'm <laughs> certainly I'm trying to learn how to make that more the case for my own open source projects. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. I'm with you there. Um, but yeah, so we formed this little company within. What the was the name of the company? Improving Works was the name of the company. So Improving Enterprises was the name of the consultancy. Improving and then Works was the name. Improving Works. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know we had you know, a little board of about four people. We had, we, we would basically like, um, get developer time from some of the consultants that were at the consultancy at like a reduced rate and bill it back to the, um, product company. Got it. Um, and you know, a lot of, a lot of my time was, was spent that way when I was on the bench at, at improving enterprises. Um, and you know, we tried to polish this thing up and we, we had a few customers. We had some people that really liked it. Um, but it was just really, really difficult to sort of get the traction because, you know, the, the thing that I saw, and I don't know if this mirrors your experience too, um, is that the people who are your users are not the people who have the budget to buy it. That is exactly um, my, yeah. Yeah, my, my experience. So you wind up in this terrible situation of either having to convince the people with the budget that it's a good idea to buy the tools and optimizing for that, or optimizing for the actual user experience, which is what you would really want to do, except those people don't have any money to buy it, so you wind up not selling it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, you realize that you have to sell to the business, not to the developer, and that's right. a tough, tough market when you are really targeting the developer because that's who you are. You know how to sell to a developer. Right, right. Although, so in my own experience, one of the things that I, maybe erroneously, but now I'm thinking about it, having not thought about it for 20 years, um, <laughs> thought was... I wonder if there is a little part of a developer for certain tools where if it seems like a simple problem, like as you've described it to me, apart from like a bit of bytecode um, fiddling, uh, it's, you know, hey, follow the dependency tree backwards and then find the tests that are dependent on that. That's great, right? You're like, I could write that myself, right? right. That doesn't seem too hard. Why right. would I pay my own money to get that when if I had yeah. the time I could just write it and then the, right. the question in your mind is like when will you have the time and could you actually yes. write it if you put your mind to it yeah uh, obviously you pretty much anything is achievable but like mm -hmm. you know I'm, I'm not going to I'm probably not going to write my own IDE so right. I think I can I can square buying an IDE um, because it makes me that much more profitable as a as an individual even you know i actually buy most ideas myself so that i can have them for all my own projects and everything i do mm -hmm. without any kind mm -hmm. of encumbrance rather than relying on like the work ones yeah um but you know if someone just gave me for example and we'll get back to this a source code formatter you know i could write my own source code formatter how hard can it be it's just a bunch of regular expressions and a bit of whatever so why would i pay for one of those that's that right. becomes difficult Right. Um, so that's the secondary part. But then the other, yeah, as you say, the thing you identified is that really the people who control the purse strings are in a different org often, or at least a couple of levels above the, your your intended customer, direct customer. Mm -hmm. And you need to prove mm -hmm. to those people that it's worth the productivity boost that their developers will have. And so you have to convince them and not the developers themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So... The, the name of your company was ProFactor. Am I getting that right? That is correct. Yeah, ProFactor. So it, what was ProFactor? Naming is hard. I think we've, we've, <laughs> we've, we've, I don't know if we've covered naming is hard, but it is the single most difficult thing to do. Uh, so the story, and I, I, we may have talked about this before, I forget, but the short version is 
my my friend um Nikki Hemmings and I were working together at Argonaut Games where we were working on all sorts of Xbox and PlayStation 2 titles. We were exposed to giant messes of huge sprawling C++ code bases and while down the pub uh, we kind of kicked around the idea that maybe we were doing the development of large C++ projects wrong. We had just read John Lacos's large-scale C++ design book and it was very a pragmatic solution to how do you lay your project out physically you know how do you decide which things go in header files which thing goes in cpp files how do you decide which subdirectories and libraries and all these kind of things that you should lay your project out to optimize for developer productivity as well as the design of your software because unfortunately mm-hmm. those things can go hand in hand with something like with like c++ and we we sort of drunk the Kool-Aid from that and we had decided that a lot of this stuff could be automated and a lot of it could be generated um, by, well, not generated, a lot of it could be made easier by approaching development in a different way. And so our big idea was rather than storing a C++ program as a bunch of text files, holding the whole thing as a database where mm-hmm. functions and class definitions and all that good stuff are held purely as table entries or rather, you know, rows in the ta- in tables. So um, the IDE, such as it is, understands the fundamental connectedness of a lot of all the things. You know, you're calling printf and it's not like the text P-R-I-N-T-F is in the code. It's like, no, mm-hmm. this is a reference to the function call printf and it's an invocation of that. So mm-hmm. if you need to show it to the user, you obviously look it up and say printf open paren and then all the arguments in it but right. when you need to give it to the compiler you probably do need to give it the same information yeah, yeah. but you've got an option there you can choose oh well this is where i'm actually just going to inline and output the text of that function or this is where i'm just going to re- refer to it and say well the linker will provide this later on or this is where i'm going to put it in a header file on all these tricks that lacos's book was talking about when you decide to allocate objects versus put them on the, uh, the stack versus mm-hmm. um, having a pointer to them and not actually knowing what they are other than they it's a foo pointer uh, yeah, which yeah. means you don't need the definition and deck of, of foo you only need to know that foo exists something called foo exists okay fine that I'll, I'll the linker will sort this out so that was our, our our idea it was a lot of fun because i had to write a full c++ like parser for mm-hmm. c++ 98 which was rather tricky a lot of yeah fun some some definition yes. of fun um, yes and in fact um i think maybe we mentioned this when we had claire mccray on but um like some of the biggest tests in there were essentially giant acceptance tests of huge bits of c++ code that i'd found mm-hmm. off of the internet and then pasted in and run the program on and then dump the sort of internal state saying like this is what we think <laughs> we parsed mm-hmm. and does it mm-hmm. make sense or not uh more of a regression than anything else but um, yeah, the idea was you hold it in a database and then you can do all these clever things with it. And the, 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 that means refactoring is, is trivial for like renaming mm-hmm. a function is, well, I just change its name in the table. That's the end of it. Right. You know, there's no, yeah. nothing else happens after that when I re-render it out. The right. other thing, and this is another sort of motivating factor as well as um, the benefits of being able to like have a fast compile where you just defer everything um, to the compiler in different ways based on Lacos's ideas versus... Um, you know, having to make those decisions yourself. Um, the other um, thing was that you could display to the user the code in the style that they cared about. Like you yeah. formatted it because you essentially always had to format it in order to show right. it to them because it right. wasn't stored right. in the way that you're used to thinking about text. Yeah. So um, 
that was another sort of fringe benefit. You know, you, there were no more arguments about what the code style was because the right. code style was your own code style. Tabs versus spaces and where the curly braces go. and Exactly. Yeah, yeah, All yeah, those yeah. holy wars. So it was an interesting idea. Um, we got as far as building the front end, which was parsing the code and bringing it into an internal database. So this was like for essentially the import part. Mm-hmm. And then the formatting and rendering part. And we were able to make a product that was just a formatter. And it was a pretty powerful formatter because unlike the other formatters around, this is way before Clang format mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. other things became um, available. Uh, it, it actually had a parse tree. And so mm-hmm. you could make any number of like decisions about, no, no, I, my switch statement's like this unless they're four levels deep inside a function, in which case they, they get formatted differently. Obviously, why you'd want to do that, I don't know, but it was at least possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we had some, you know, we had a few customers. Um, there was a, a large uh, chip manufacturer bought um, bought a big site license for it, which was like our biggest sale by a long way. And and they liked it. They loved it. And presumably they used it to enforce a style. We had plugins for IDEs that like similar to the ones that you described. And um, and then we kind of ran out of money. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we had a secondary product, which was more like an analysis product that allowed you to see what the impact of changing a single line of a header file was things mm, like that where mm-hmm. we could like graph it and go well if you change this like actually bizarrely similar to what you're you're talking about with the following the dependency graph back for the mm, test mm-hmm. in this instance you're saying yeah. like what is the cost for editing this line of code right if it's in the body yeah. of a cpp file it is however long it takes to compile that cpp file which is the length of that cpp file plus the transitive closure of all the things it includes which is one cost whereas mm-hmm. if i change error.h which has my big list right. of all the errors used in my entire program and I add a new yeah, error yeah. every single file in my entire code base will rebuild as a result of that yes. and so the cost of changing that is very very high yes and these are exactly the metrics yeah. that we were targeting uh, bringing down by using Lycosian style techniques interesting but yeah we never really made it that far I mean I, now I look back and you know I was obviously very proud of what we did but you know it was very naive what we were we were trying to achieve in the way we're trying to achieve it and mostly people love files everything everyone yeah. understands a file right <laughs> yeah yeah that's a really interesting idea though i it, it kind of strikes me that it's like you one of the side effects of that would be like almost blurring the line between like code formatting refactoring and optimization right all of those are basically like different variations on the same theme which is i have this representation of the program mm-hmm. that is abstract and i can spit it out to you uh format it however you like i can spit it out to you refactored however you like right you know we can inline functions we can rename things i can spit it out to you optimized however you like like i can do like certain changes to the code as i generate it based on the platform that you're targeting or maybe even things like memory constraints or things like right. that Right. I mean, it sounds like you guys never really got to that point. Never got it, that far, very, no, but that was the intention. Really interesting idea, yeah. yeah. You know, one of the, uh, just to sort of give you an example of that, because if folks are not familiar with, say, C++ or mm-hmm. C-like languages, um, you can decide whether or not you're going to sh- uh, show the size of your object to everybody. If, you, if you're going to ever instantiate an object, if a piece of code depends on, like, making right, some, some object, mm-hmm. um, then the... At the point at which if you're using it by value, you need to know how big that is because the compiler needs to allocate that many bytes on the stack or reserve that much register space to put your object into. If, however, you always have a pointer to that object and some other piece of the code made that object, 
the pointers are always eight bytes or four bytes as it was back in the day right they're always mm -hmm. the same size and so now the code doesn't need to know anything other than like i call a function i get a pointer back i own this pointer now and i'm responsible for like cleaning it up afterwards which now we have smart pointers to do for us which is great but effectively i don't need to know the definition of that it's a handle. Mm -hmm. It's a handle now. Right. You know, like when you yeah. in Windows, you get an H yeah. wind. You don't have the window structure. <laughs> if Windows could change the window anytime, but you have some magic number yeah. that means that's the instance I refer to. And so you can yeah. do that all over the shop in, in C++. But there's a trade-off because now every time you use a function that needs that handle, the, the calling code has to completely delegate to the call the called code to say, well, okay, you have to now work out what a window is. And, and for example, mm -hmm. if it was like... Um, you know, get me the, the the title bar of this window. It might be that that actually that that information is stored directly at the pointer. That handle you got back just literally points at the string that corresponds to the window that you're talking about. And mm -hmm. if you knew that, then your get me the the name of the window would just literally cast it to a char star, and you've now got the name. But instead, now I have to make a function call that's then going to do that and return back to me, and that's more expensive than yeah. knowing it. So yeah. there's a trade-off there. This is a kind of automatic. Um, thing that could potentially be done by a uh, an, a system which knew, knows how to make that trade-off and when to make that trade-off. Although it does have mm -hmm. a lot more uh, binary-level um, ramifications for like ABI if you're calling other programs. But anyway, just as yeah, an example, yeah. and I realize now that's probably three minutes too long of talking about <laughs> some of the more esoteric uh, aspects of, of no, I mean, I, I can imagine that the two of you were your your brains were spinning on different possibilities that um, you you could have done if you you know once you once you sort of have the system in place. Um, one of the other th th I don't know if you had this experience as well, but one of the other problems that I ran into um, trying to sell developer tools, and I really empathized with this when I would talk to potential users, and they would tell me like. Yeah, so how does the licensing work? Oh, man. Do, do I need to have, like, a special file in a special place? It wasn't quite as bad for something that, for the IDE plugins, because they were kind of used to that a little bit. But then we started getting, like, one of the things that we looked at and never wound up doing, and part of the reason was this, um, is integrating it into CI. Like, people were like, oh, this is a really cool oh. technology. Could I make my builds faster by just plugging in this and having like a pre-build step that said, well, you change these files, I'm going to run these tests. If those fail, there's no point in doing anything else. And we were like, yeah, that sounds great. And and I had some conversations with um, uh, Jeff Frederick, who I think worked at, oh gosh, what was the name of the company? Urban Code? They made a CI system. And I remember being at a conference talking to him about this. And he's like, yeah, you got to be, you got to think about how you, you want to like handle the ergonomics around this. Cause people get really cranky when it's like, you know, oh yeah, I, I'm trying to set up a new CI server and I can't cause the stupid license file is in the wrong place. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a really, really valid point. Yes. We had a similar deal. Luckily our stuff was not in anything but an IDE. So yeah, it was yeah. less of a problem although, you know, being able to format code as a part of a check-in or rather, or mm -hmm. on, as part of the CI, and say, "Hey, look, you didn't somehow you forgot to do it before you checked it in." Obviously, would be a boon. But yeah, mm -hmm. we had our own hand rolled licensing uh, um, setup, which you know we we couldn't afford to use some third party license. Like, did you use a third party, or did you make your own? Did you even have one? Well, we never even we never even uh, got to the point with the CI stuff with the um, with the um, IDE stuff. We had a license file, and I got some third party thing got to it. do it. I don't even remember See, what it that, was. That was just too much fun to not have yeah. a crack at myself. 
Yeah. Yeah. Was was yeah. like doing the the licensing thing. Uh, I think. I think whatever we had was actually baked into our, um, our like point of sale. Like so, we had like a you know a website where you could go and you could buy a license, and they had something that they could use to generate a license. So they could run like a program and and yeah, you get your own unique exe that had the whatever thing baked into it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember how we did ours, but yeah, we. It was my first real um, dalliance with with uh, doing any kind of cryptoy type stuff where you know checking right. hashes and things and then harking my own mind back to like when i used to crack um, um for <laughs> yeah, purely right. explore educational purposes uh software for my you know risk pc and bbc micro stuff yeah where you know you're like well you know there's the you are, you have to put the obvious check in at the beginning which says no invalid license which only checks you know two-thirds of the real license checks <laughs> and then somewhere much, much further on, a long way away from the error message where anyone with half a brain is going to search for, again, sorry, yeah. my dog in the background is going to whinge, but anyone with half a brain who's trying to reverse engineer is going to look for the error message and go, oh, look, there's the compare that says, you know, oh, invalid, right, okay, let's take right. the compare out. Hooray, I've got yes. a licensed copy now. And then, of course, uh-huh. when you go to do the actual format or the 50, 15th time that you do the format, you check one of the other pieces and you go, ah, <laughs> this is still not a correct piece of software, so mm-hmm, I'm going to, like, mm-hmm. prop up some other a less obvious error until eventually you get right. to the point where it's just like you just crash and, and then people yes. are left with the idea of like it's buggy software you're like no it's crashing on purpose and, and we're trying to yeah. do it in a way that means that it's not obvious yeah, that yeah. It's crashing. and that was fun and i remember we found on some where's site we found a hooky copy uh, of uh, style manager and i still have it on my hard disk somewhere as like with, with a, <laughs> so i could go through and see how they taken out all of the um the, the copy protection stuff copy protection is laughable really but you know at that that's point you so go fair enough if you're prepared to spend all that much time yes. and effort then i'm really that's, that's fine by me all um, yours man all yours happy times but yeah that was one of the other things that i was really um i never really had a good answer to is sort of like yeah all this like drm copy protection it's, stuff is just it sucks i hate it i hate that we have to do it like i don't even really want to do it but that's just how it is something needs to be yes you need to do token yeah. effort stuff i mean i think we've we've mm-hmm. talked about this before i mean there is um intel's c compiler mm-hmm. uh, have we spoken about this or i can't remember who i was talking to on I we was, talked about this on the train we did okay day, i was just I wondering i was having a moment of like did i talk to you about it i mean we haven't talked yeah. about it on the podcast but we definitely talked about it on right. the train yeah. Uh, but yeah, Intel's own um, C compiler has a license, and um, through conversations with their engineers, they've told me uh, that really they would be happy to give it away for free because it obviously it showcases their own chips. It works best on their own CPUs. They understand how their CPUs work, and so they're able to schedule instructions and make use of all sorts of clever bits and pieces much better than either GCC or Clang because they have to be a bit more general. So that's all mm-hmm. great. Um, and I'm like, but but if it's proselytizing your own chip, why are you charging for it? He said, well, if we don't charge for it, then people don't see it as being valuable. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. not how I think. Because what I yeah. think is exactly as you said, um, if I want to even try out, and sorry, Ben has been, is now over my shoulder. My my dog is, is unfortunately um, humping his, uh, <laughs> his bed. Monty! I wasn't going to bring it I, up. Well, I can't are. not because I'm looking at the screen and I can see it reflected. So <laughs> I don't know. He's having a fine time. He's, I mean, yeah. Now he's staring out the window. Yeah, he's, he's having that right. Do you need a cigarette? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Very different kind of a podcast suddenly. I'm so sorry. Anyway, 
Intel uh, <laughs> compilers, you, you might want to try it out, but then if you need to install a license file in some magic place on a CI server in order to even check it in and see if have a branch yeah. build that works it's immediately a turn off and like i don't want to have a have yeah, to have a conversation yeah. maybe in the world of docker these days where people can run their own docker images on some ci it's less of a problem because you can put the license yeah. in the docker but yeah whatever it is there's an unfortunate tension between developers uh sort of uh sensibilities around drm which at least in my experience, developers are generally against any kind of DRM. Again, because we think to ourselves, but it's just bytes and numbers. And how, why, how could he charge for it? Despite that's how right. I pay my mortgage is by just right. bytes and numbers that I write for somebody yes. else. Yes. It's like, yes, of course you could do this with enough time. Is that worth your time? Like, that's not, that's the thing. I, it, you know, here's, here's what I want to do. And I'm, I feel like this doesn't happen and I understand why it doesn't happen, but here's what I really want to have happen in the world of like developer tools and stuff like this is you're going to give me some money and I'm going to give you some source code and that's going to be the end of the deal. Right? Like, why does that not happen? Well, I mean, the reason it doesn't happen is because people don't trust other people's source code, right? It's like, you know, the sort of old thing of like, you know, reading code is a, a lot more painful than writing it. <laughs> but, you know, maybe that's th the way, maybe that's because the way that we write things is to not have them readable for general purposes. Like I would tell you, yep. it, it's a waste of time and money to write code that's intended to be sort of... Um, digested by someone who doesn't have the context of the project right, right? i was gonna you know say I mean? no, there's definitely a level at which you're like well we know that we read source code more often than we actually right. write it because we're scrolling yes. up and down it all the time but then as you say a huge amount of that is context dependent you know yes. i i'm yes. comfortable in all the code bases that i'm in because i know this what everything should look and smell like and i can see mm -hmm. the familiar pattern straight away but if you handed mm -hmm. me the innards of the Intel compiler to me right now, I'd be like, well, this is, if, if it was intended as a, something for me to look at, then it needs to be right, written right. in a very different way. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like, um, you know, a book versus like your personal notes, right? Like, um, or, you know, like a family calendar, I think is actually a great metaphor for this. Oh, right. right? Yeah. Like, you know, like you got the calendar on the wall, and like, you know, 4 p.m. Saturday, garage stuff. What is garage stuff? Well, if you're in the family, you know what garage you know stuff exactly is, what that right? Is, yeah. But if I just hand you my calendar and I say, well, what am I, you know, what does this mean? Like, no one's going to know. And, and that makes sense for family calendar. And it makes sense for a project, right? If you have a company, if you have a team, there's a certain amount of context that you can just kind of assume. And that makes everything much simpler. If you spell it all out, A, you wind up writing a bunch of documentation that's going to be either costly to maintain or realistically won't be maintained. Right, and it'll and just it will be just wrong. fall out, right. Um, or, you know, uh, like, so I, I, I think that's, I think that's generally why people don't do it, but it almost seems like a little bit of a chicken and egg problem to yeah. me where it's like, because you don't write software this way, you never get to reuse it this way because who would like, you'd have to do it on, per you'd have to do it with intention. You have to say like, I'm going to write a whole bunch of code and then I'm writing it for an audience that doesn't really understand the context around it, but I'm, I'm going to write it in a way that lets them read it and, and come up to speed so on it are, easier. There are examples of things like you describe. So the Unreal Engine mm. is shipped oh, that yeah. way. 
That's a, okay. So you you sign up for it. You, you 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 know you you sign all of the disclaimers and promise that you're not going to leak it around or whatever. At least if you're going to like I've done as a sort of open source mm-hmm. uh, contributor, and you get access to their GitHub repo. You Git clone it and you type the equivalent of make or you follow the instructions. You wait two and a half million years for it to actually compile <laughs> while you convection heat your house with the exhaust of your computer, <laughs> and then you end up with you know a funny little game that you can move around. But you've got the source code to the whole engine and the editor. And everything that goes with it, and oh, then you're like, off you go. That. So I don't know. I that's about as far as I got because um, huh. life was too short after that. Um, but yeah, right. Um, but I always intended to go back and look at more of it. But I, yeah, it was. So I don't know how readable the rest of the code is. But I guess also maybe they've reached this point um, where the code base is so large that it is worth for only for internal reasons them. Mm-hmm. making this sort of like slightly more readable documented code yeah, possible. yeah 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 i also wonder how um things like pixar's render man are distributed i don't know if that is distributed as source but like if you get a license to buy uh mm-hmm. if you're like you're, you're some movie studio and all you get is like render.exe you might be a little bit worried <laughs> that yeah that's it. yeah you, know, you right. want some kind of um protection if nothing else right. if the you know if pixar goes bust or whatever that, yeah, that you can yeah. still render your movie. Oh, uh, yeah. So I wonder about that. And, I, you know, for example, I know that also Google had a source license for the Perforce version tracking system so that they could basically re-implement it for their own needs because they had to scale beyond what it could do. And and so obviously these things are possible, whether or not they are that common. I mean, obviously they're not that common because most of us yeah. consume shrink wrap software. Certainly where we are sitting, right, and the smallish companies right. that we work for, it's like, right. yeah, buy by the shrink wrap box. When was the last time you actually bought a shrimp shrink wrapped box? I can't ima- I can't remember myself. Oh, it's been a long long while, but I still call it software? That. Yeah, you know, like uh, Windows 95 or something. Many. <laughs> I guess when I was building my most recent gaming PC, I got a copy of Windows from Amazon and they sent me a DVD for some reason. Oh, I'm like, I so don't need any box. of this. I just need the, I just, I just need the like, 22 well, I think it was character me. code or whatever to type in. Yeah. I mean, I think it was just like a cardboard wrapper around the, right. You know, the sleeve around the beautiful the boxes DVD. that we used to get, no, you know, where you'd, and then no. take the cellophane off. Cellophone, yes, cellophane. Yeah. Cellophane. <laughs> I don't know what a cellophane. It's what Italians call mobile phones. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry to our uh, if we have an Italian listener. I'm very sorry. That was. <laughs> oh dear. Oh my God. Now yeah. We're... No, I don't remember the last time I actually unwrapped one of those, and I know totally the boxes that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, but I I remember as a teenager, you know, wandering the the aisles of Best Buy, right. looking at different games to to get. You know, I've got fifty dollars in my pocket, and I'm like, I should get a new game. New game, and so, ooh, this one looks cool. This one looks cool. You know, sound blaster compatible. Thank thing. God for that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes, right. <laughs> so, all right, complete yes. non sequitur, and I, we need to yeah. finish up because we're we're running low on time. But um, oh, on that, that subject, I just start, replayed Day of the Tentacle. I don't know if you ever played any of those um, original Lucasfilm. I played games. some of those. I played some of those games. I didn't play Day of the Tentacle. It's just I, so I, great. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. just so much fun. But it, yeah, it has. It's, it definitely has that memory. That, those were the kind of games mm-hmm. I last remembered, like picking those big chunky boxes before mm-hmm. everything was just you know CDs. Was mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you know, Secret of Monkey Island, 
and uh, Day of the Temple. Salmon Hat Max hit the road. That I, I played. Uh, Salmon yes, Max, that, yeah. I think, I think they've game. done a remake of that as well. But no, I had a, a very enjoyable weekend playing through Day of the Tentacle again, and it did hold up. I was glad yeah. to see. <laughs> that is cool. Um, that is cool. So that pretty much covers the uh, software development. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> selling to developers is hard. T- the summary TLDRs. is everyone should go and play Day of the Tentacle. <laughs> Instead of building a software development tools company, go play Day of the Tentacle. Exactly. You'll have a lot more fun and you'll make the same amount of money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and on that bombshell, I think uh, we're calling it a day. (laughs) Bye, mate. See you later. You've been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbold. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at 2CP, that's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Phase, inversephase.com. <laughs>